<clears throat> hey man, welcome back to the Super Divorce Supercast. Live. Not a completely unprecedented move, might I add. It's uh, rare, it hasn't happened in a while, but it has happened before, I will say that. It has been a bit. Uh, back when Bender and I were doing this, for a time, when it was just the two of us, we we were tinkering around with uh, doing the live supercast on Facebook. Some of you, perhaps, might remember that. I'm betting not. But there was a period of time where we were, in fact tinkering around with a live supercast and we didn't do it for very long and a proper shout out to proper jeremy and also a proper shout out to proper jenny who's here proper jenny what's up um i don't believe that i have ever spoken with proper jenny perhaps i have but but uh perhaps not very often we could say. This is not a Jeremy that I recall seeing in here too too much in the past. But I did have an extended break there for a bit. So um, back in December, we had quite a few Jeremys coming on this channel when we were building our Voltron set. And then things kind of dropped off. Uh, I, I stopped doing so many late night videos and that seemed to be a good time to get people in oddly enough but here i am proper jeremy jenny says i couldn't change my name oh okay so it's actually this is actually proper jeremy it's not a new it's not a new jeremy uh parody account here we're actually speaking with proper jeremy in the live youtube chat i have to mention that uh i am examining the chat on YouTube as uh, eventually this will be uploaded onto iTunes and such and anyone who's listening to the audio might be like what do you mean who, who, who's here it's just you talking what do you mean who, this person's here well I'm I'm looking at a chat you see so that's what's going on and proper Jeremy who apparently transitioned to proper Jenny and is now stuck. Um, perhaps lamenting uh, her decision at this point. But I don't know. I don't know. Okay, um, so this is, uh, this is episode number 100 of the Super Divorce Supercast. What a ride it's been. If you go back and listen to the very first episode of the Super Divorce Supercast, it's going to be much different than what you hear tonight. Back then, oh boy, we were a four-piece post-hardcore band full of piss and vinegar, as they say. Now, look at me. Now look at me. I'm sitting here alone in my office having a nice 
leisurely chat with everyone out there. Yeah. Uh, oh, my wife is here, by the way, in the YouTube chat. She has decided to drop in. Um, and then uh, proper Jenny is saying that that uh, I was supposedly told about this this proper Jenny thing. I don't know. I met up with proper Jen. Well, uh, proper Jeremy. It, that's how that's how he appeared in public. It looked like proper Jeremy to me last weekend, and we were imbibing some spirits together. And uh, perhaps if this was brought up then, I I'm a bit fuzzy on it because uh, I had quite a bit had quite a bit to drink that evening when we were hanging out with proper Jeremy. So I apologize if I heard about this and, and I've forgotten it. So uh, please excuse me. So as I was saying, things have changed a bit since this podcast started. It's had some starts and stops. Uh, you know, Bender and I had a, a pretty good streak going there for a while when there was nothing else happening within the world of super divorce. It's interesting, you know, this it's kind of a chronicle of sorts. You could go back and listen to the the various eras in the supercast and get a glimpse into what the nature of this project was at various points over the past what uh has it been 4 years now? Has it been four years that Super Divorce has been around? Crazy. Uh, three or four years. I believe four. But basically, um, for one of those years, it was kind of uh, a situation where we were in limbo. After after Bob Tallman and Dale Hupke exited the band, it was down to me and Bender and... Uh, and we didn't really know what we were going to do musically. We wanted to do something. I wasn't ready to hang it up with Super Divorce. We'd, you know, uh, just gotten rolling, kind of. It's like, well, we can't play those songs anymore. We can't play all of our full band songs with two people, especially with one who's just a vocalist, you know? Um, so what? Well, let's just uh, let's keep doing the podcast, and that'll be something to keep us active. And we did a pretty good job with it. We hung in there, you know, uh, we didn't miss a beat for some time, but you know, here, here we are now. And it's, uh, it's just me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a look at all of these questions that have kind of built up over the course of the past eight months, believe it or not. We have exactly one subscriber on Patreon. It's not something that I push um, because honestly, for for quite a while, I've been meaning to delete our Patreon account. Um, but Obi-Wan subscribed about eight months ago. And as a subscriber, you get to ask us a question that we will then... Uh, address and read on the supercast that now I will address and I will read on the supercast. But you see, um, 
so right i i was gonna delete the patreon because i was very unhappy with some of their antics earlier in the year and i still plan on getting rid of this thing i will at some point the problem is if you want to delete your patreon account and you have and you have a balance you know where subscribers have have donated money to you you can't delete your account until you have that money transferred into your bank account and you clear it off of your patreon right and so I've gone to delete the account a couple times. And then when I do it, it's like, oh my God, I forgot. I need to move this money over. And then that takes whatever, uh, several days to complete. And by the time I've, you know, uh, by the time that would have happened, then I've forgotten about it again. And, and so it's just, eh, you know, whatever. I'll get around to it. I guess the good thing about me not deleting it is that now I've got a queue of questions here. I've got some good topics that I can address. And uh, Obi-Wan will finally get his money's worth here this evening. A very loyal fan and uh, all around uh, just a fantastic dude. Fantastic. Obi-Wan reviews, everyone. If you've not subscribed to his channel, please go and do that. <clears throat> please do so. He's doing a... Uh, some videos right now showcasing his miraculous recovery from ACL surgery. He's got himself in slow-mo, in fantastic like 4K slow-mo out there, running around, throwing at the wickets, doing the cricket thing. It's great. It's a great story. And he's a great guy. And he does some uh, some wonderful beer reviews, too. So, oh, and Obi-Wan is actually here. So there we are. Obi-Wan's here. Hopefully he enjoyed that little plug for his channel. And Proper Jenny is saying that the, the Proper Jenny name changed from Proper, Jer yeah, from Proper Jeremy to Jenny was an April Fool's Day joke. But now he, he can't change it back to proper Jeremy. So perhaps the joke's on you, sir. That was their joke on you from YouTube. YouTube's got jokes too. Okay. So, ooh boy. All right. Way back. Way back eight months ago, right? Obi-Wan's question was this. Um, well, I'll read the whole thing. So, um, he says, will religion ever become obsolete? I see from your Facebook account that you studied religion and philosophy. So no doubt you will have a lot to say about this. I will just say that as an agnostic atheist, I hope religion becomes obsolete, that the pros would outweigh the cons, unless I am wrong and God smites us all to hell but that I don't think it will ever happen. Thanks, Obi-Wan. All right. So, yes, I do have quite a bit to say about this. It's a, it's a big, it's a big, big question, isn't it? Mm. Where, where do you uh, even begin on something like this? Well, I guess, let me go back to the question. Just, will religion ever become obsolete? 
Hmm. No. I don't believe it will. I don't believe it will ever become obsolete. Um, there are many reasons for that. Um, I, I guess you could get to a point perhaps where, where religion is heavily, heavily frowned upon. Maybe even to a point where you could imagine this uh, sort of uh, nightmarish dystopian vision of the future where maybe it's even outlawed completely. But I think even doing that, um, naturally, some version of religion would, would rise back to the surface. It would, it would kind of bubble up and then it would eventually rise up to the surface again. Because I don't believe that a completely sort of sterile scientific view of the world is sufficient for human beings to thrive and function because the the scientific view itself is it's i'm i'm trying i've got so much to say about this it's it's tough for me to articulate my feelings without getting overwhelmed because uh, it's such a big topic, and there's so many places you can go with it. Um, so I was trying to say, real quick, that that the the sterile view, the completely sort of uh, factual brass tacks version of reality, is not sufficient. Just the facts alone do not suffice to help a person lead a meaningful life. You know, there are there are leaps of faith that any person has to make in order to go about their day. No matter um no matter how dry and down to earth a person claims to be, uh no matter how bare bones their ideology, it's like everyone Everyone has sort of uh, something at their core that that keeps them moving, you know. And at the end of the day, uh, the the scientific facts and such can only take a person so far. Um, even ultimate questions like uh, why is there something rather than nothing, you know, you can you can come up with. Uh, let's say that the tomorrow an equation was discovered or something to put it in in those terms even if a even if this basic equation was uncovered and and the answer to that question why is there something rather than nothing could be explained in in terms that um were as simple to us as 2 plus 2 equals 4 you can still go beyond that and you can you can question why that is. You know, there's there's never a completely logical place to stop with any of these things. You know, we get answers that are, are sort of good enough and answers that work. So I think that, that my approach is kind of uh, the pragmatic one. It's like, if if the truth works, so to speak, then 
then it's uh, it's at least sufficient for the moment. Um, hold on, let me. Uh, okay, I just want to make sure that that we didn't have any any questions being thrown out in the the chat there. Um, but yeah, uh, so no, I don't think that religion will ever become obsolete because, like I said. Um, People need more than 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 sort of uh, textbook explanations for things to keep them moving, to keep them going in life, especially during tough times. And I'm not even necessarily talking about uh, people needing things like traditional faith or uh, traditional religion, but there are there are questions that are posed to a person during times of difficulty that unless answered with what you might call a religious answer, unless given a religious answer, so to speak, uh, the question will not be answered sufficiently. So something like you've hit rock bottom, you're having a horrible, horrible time, um, and then, you know, that, that question creeps in where it's like, well, why bother? You know, why, why bother to persevere through this ultimately? Because the completely, uh, you might call this like a dry logical, um, answer to that question could be, uh, there is no good reason why, you know, and you, and you'll hear this, um, from like the the nihilist perspective people who uh who spout this kind of nonsense off where it's like oh well um you know why why should i try to achieve anything in life or why should i try to be happy why should i try and better myself because well there's going to be the heat death of the universe and however many millions of years and everything's just going to go to shit so everything that i do is just going to be erased and it's going to be meaningless it's like well that's not even uh, I think that that's actually wrong. I don't, and I don't think it's just a matter of opinion. I think that that's actually wrong because I don't think that the heat death of the universe has anything to do with the meaning that's to be found in your life right in the moment. But you have to make that admission. You know, you have to, you have to make that leap of faith, let's say, and trust in your own experience and, and people who go too far in the direction of um, austerity, let's say, they, uh, they, they end up having to ignore their own experience. They'll feel things. They'll feel a desire to go on. They'll, they'll feel something pushing them and something kind of telling them not to give up. And that's what I'm saying uh, is, is kind of, um, that feeling, that urge, it's something that can only be, it can only be justified, I think, in a quasi, at least, religious context. Because explaining that as a biological imperative to pass on your genes or something like that doesn't mean a goddamn thing when you're, uh, in, in the midst of a horrible bout of depression, that kind of explanation does nothing for you. That's not going to work. Um, but 
but when you when you acknowledge your own feelings and you think about uh, reasons why you'd like to stay alive, reasons why you'd like to get better, um, persevere, even uh, go to the pinnacle of what you might be able to achieve in your life. You want to push yourself. Let's say you want to uh, become the best at whatever it is that you're trying to do in life. Um, you have to you have to validate your own uh, your own beliefs. Meaning, there's not going to be any sort of outside logical uh, um, equation or anything of that nature that's going to finally convince you that it's worth it. It's one of those things that you can keep going back and forth on over and over again. There is no um, absolute bedrock scientific fact that's going to persuade you that it's worth it. It's It, it takes, like I said, a sort of a leap. And I think that when you... When you start dealing with that, you get into the realm of religion, like it or not. So, yeah. Um, Obi-Wan says, I think I've asked enough questions. I'm cycling right now. Okay. Well, great. It's a good time, a good time to listen then while out on the cycle. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's a long-winded and kind of scatterbrained response to that question, but you know, I, I feel like I, that's something that, that I could go on and on about for a long time. And, you know, I wish that, that I could present a more, um, a more concise and organized answer to that question. But that's just kind of what comes to me at the moment. Uh, like I said, the, the thrust of my argument there, or my opinion is that, that the answers to life's big questions are always going to kind of swirl around religious language. Even if the language that's being used, say 500 years from now, uh, doesn't involve any of the, the characters or the mythologies that we're familiar with right now. It's like these, these concepts and the answers to these questions they they seem to work best when couched in a narrative. No, I didn't actually. Siri just kicked on for some reason. I have my uh, iPhone on to use the metronome app while I was using a different app on my Pixel. Uh, all right, you can go away. I don't need you, Siri. Siri's thirsty. Okay, proper Jenny is going to get some sleep now. All right, sweet dreams, Jenny. All right, so let me see. And, and let me just address one more thing here. Obi-Wan said that as an agnostic atheist, he hopes religion becomes obsolete. Uh, and that's where I would say that you might want to at least think about, you know... Um, some of the things I said, ask yourself what, what you think could possibly replace religion. And I know that, um, like I, I had my Dawkins 
phase uh, of atheism, where I kind of left the Christianity that I grew up with and, and felt like, you know, the whole thing was a sham and that I'd been lied to and, and I'd been guilted into and, and scared into believing this or that. And then coming out of that, you're, I think, understandably a little bit pissed off and you feel like there's an axe to grind. But, you know, then it's like there's so many different uh, religions out there and I don't think all of them are equally as uh, functional. I don't think they're all equally valid, but I think that they all do, they've all, the ones that that uh, have persisted have obviously helped large numbers of people thrive over the years. Not everyone's interpretation is healthy. Um, and not all of them have, uh, have been enacted and implemented in a way that, uh, has led to, to thriving, but some of them have, and the ones that have, I think have done a really good job and have helped to build uh, the world that, that we have now, which is much better than the world that uh, you probably would have been running around in as a caveman. Um, so one thing that you want to ask yourself, if you're hoping for religion to go away, which I've been there, but but something that I didn't think about that I started thinking about a couple years ago was... If religion went away, what would replace it? You know, what would the ethic be? And that's an important question. And it's not, there's no obvious answer to it either. I mean, there's no, actually, I mean, you can answer that pretty well. What what I think you end up with usually is, um, Jordan Peterson's talked about this. He, he says that, uh, you know, you would end up with, a, a hobbled religion or, or sort of a, a top-down ethic imposed on citizens or on a society by the state. Because people are always naturally going to look towards something. You're always going to have your eyes trained on something. You're, you're always kind of, uh, you're fixed on a target or many targets, which is something that's happening now. Um, and it's, that's a problem. Uh, a guy that I really love listening to Jonathan Pajot, who has an awesome YouTube channel. He talks about this, the fact that as, as people lose like a common religion in society, then you see this, this dispersal, um, of people's attention and you end up with, with people oriented in so many different directions that the society starts to kind of crumble. And this, the, the solution to be sure is not to force people to, you know, uh, come back and join the church or, um, or to force people into a common vision, but something has to happen and something will, I think naturally, but we're in a, a kind of turbulent and chaotic time right now because uh, because so many people have lost faith in the, the traditional faiths and so many people are jaded and, and then so many people have different ideas of what the world should be like. And, uh, and, and 
at least it's not being articulated what we should be aiming at. You know, what the ide- what the ideal society looks like. There are varying competing versions of what that is. And, uh, and some of those competing versions are drastically different. And, and some of those competing versions have people in their camp who would gladly die to make sure that, uh, that, that the competition did not succeed, you know? So it's, it's, uh, it's tough, it's turbulent, but I think that people naturally orienting themselves towards the highest good, it's better than, than that, uh, sort of thing being imposed from the top down in a sort of tyrannical way by, a person or group of people who think they have it all figured out. Um, so, anyhow, let me continue on here and see what's next. Uh, all right. Hi, Nick. Looks like looks like it has been a month since my last question. I'm not sure if I meant to get reminders to ask a question or if I just have to remember. But anyway, I will preempt any reminder. I hope the below can produce a good discussion. Does free will exist or is every action predetermined? Thanks, Obi-Wan. All right, this is a, this is another good one. This is one that I wrestled with for some time, actually. Uh, I, I started really thinking about this question a lot when... I would say I was still I was still in in what you might call like hardcore atheist mode. And this question started started dominating my uh psyche. Started thinking about this, you know, because as a person if you if you totally um discount any idea of like the spiritual or anything besides what can be seen and examined under an, uh, under a microscope and such. If you're that like hardcore, um, and, and you only, uh, accept sort of bi- the biological mechanical explanations of nature and you leave no room for anything outside of that, then you kind of paint yourself into a, uh, a corner where, where you have to accept compatibilism or determinism, you know, where there is no such thing as free will. You know, you might feel like you're making decisions. Uh, you might have this, this experience of deliberating and weighing the options and such, but really it's just, it's neurons firing in your brain that you have no control over, um, that ultimately, uh, further down are just atoms bouncing off one another. Um, and it's all sort of a cascade of physical events. There was this thought experiment, uh, referred to as, uh, I think it's, uh, Laplace's demon. If I'm saying his name incorrectly, I apologize. I haven't, I, I did a lot of reading about this stuff, but I've, I didn't engage in a lot of discussion. I did like a semester at, uh, at college in philosophy and, um, 
you know, that was whatever. I feel like I, I learned more and I was more interested just bouncing around and reading stuff on my own. Anyway, this, uh, not again, let me, let me cut back in, cut myself off. That, that's not to discredit anyone who has put in the work to get, uh, their doctorate in philosophy or something like that. There are plenty of PhDs out there who I love listening to, who have done their homework and, uh, and, and who have uh, made a living out of, um, being a scholar. I'm not a scholar. I'm just uh, someone with an interest in these questions. As I think most people uh, do, I think most people are at least interested in these things, but not everyone explores them. It's not always comfortable. Um, so, so this demon, imagine there's this entity out there and, and it knows the position of every single atom in the universe. And the, the thought experiment was that if this demon could calculate the position of every single atom in, in the universe at a given moment, then it could, from that, deduce the entire history as well as the entire future of existence. Because in, in the purely mechanical view, like I said, everything boils down to physical interactions and these sort of billiard ball view of reality. And uh, that really dominated the, the sort of academic world for some years with like the, the sort of enlightenment uh, thinkers and such. Not all of them. Not all of them. Uh, Immanuel Kant um, was a, uh, was a, um, quite a uh, vigorous opponent of this idea and of the idea of compatibilism, which is that even within a deterministic universe where all of these events are predetermined and, and, uh, you know, you don't really have any say over what you're going to do that even within that, there'd still be a difference between free will and, um, and being, uh, I guess, uh, a slave. And in this compatibilist view, Having free will just means that you're free to to act as you want to. So it's like uh, even in the determined scenario, if this predetermined impulse leads you to wanting to reach over and uh, grab the diet coke that you have sitting to your right, um, as long as you can reach over and do that, then you're free. If you reached over to do so, and let's say uh, your your brain malfunctioned, so you had a stroke in that moment, then you're you're willing to do something, but outside events have made it so that you cannot, and so your will is your your will is impeded, and it's infringed upon, and even within that, I, I will admit as a free willist. Within that scenario, I think that there is a difference, but uh, I don't think that it amounts to the type of free will that we want when we talk about it. Uh, I think that that we we act as though we're free to uh, to deliberate and to really make decisions, to really di- direct our own lives. That's how we that's how we go about our days. That's how we treat other people and that's how we want to be treated ourselves 
most of us, anyhow. I have seen some people talk about this, and they will say things like, oh, well, you know, once I discovered determinism, and I realized that I wasn't really at fault for any of my shortcomings, that it was a freeing moment, you know, because then I could just kind of relax and be like, well, whatever happens uh, was going to happen either way, and I don't really have any say in the matter. And it's like, well, that's, in my opinion, a horrible, horrible mentality, and, and I do not condone it. I don't think that's, I don't think it's a view worth cultivating. I think it's a view worth combating, actually. And for a time, I tried to get on board with this stuff because I couldn't justify not doing it. It just felt so uncomfortable and um, it, it felt wrong, you know. Uh, it, it's not how I lived. Like I said, I wasn't going about my day. There's this, there's this uh, joke, an old philosophy joke, where, you know, it's like... Um, you hear the one about the determinist at the restaurant. The waiter comes up and says, uh, Hello, sir. What can I get for you tonight? And the determinist says, I'll have what I'm having. So it's just like this. But that's the, that's the absurd conclusion that it goes to. No one lives that way. Um, and, and I've heard people say things like, uh, Well, it would... It would be beneficial to change how we uh, structure our justice system, you know, if we discovered that, that oh, uh, free will is just an illusion and, and no one's really in control of what they're doing, then, uh, then we might have a more compassionate approach to criminal justice and, and such. And it's like, well, I don't really know that that's the case. Uh, it, it doesn't... It doesn't matter if someone commits a crime, you know, and and you have reason to believe that they're going to do it again, uh, whether that's because they choose to do it or because there's something wrong with their brain that just makes them uh, repeat these these actions that uh, that you're not going to accept in a civilized society. The end result is still that they're going to have to be separated from society. It's not like because uh, they didn't have a choice, then you can just let them off the hook. So, I don't know. Um, anyhow, I, uh, I got to a point where I guess I had this kind of, um, I don't know, I, I had a moment where over a couple years, not a moment, but it was a series of moments, where I started to realize that there's a place where the the purely scientific explanation of things just sort of uh, runs into a wall. There are things that can't be explained. You know, not everything is logical. Not everything makes sense. Existence itself doesn't make sense. You know, you, you can think about this. You know, it's it can be jarring if it's something that you don't really consider very often. But it's just like how strange is it to find yourself alive in the first place and to know that that people have been trying for thousands of years just to figure that one out like where things come from and why there is something at all it's like people have been trying to wrap their brains around that one uh, for as long as people have been thinking and we're still 
not really any, we're no closer to an answer on that because I don't, and I don't know that we ever will be even, even if, um, and this is something different than the big bang question. The big bang, I think is just explaining sort of how things are configured in the way they are in this universe. But it doesn't tell you anything about how uh, the initial conditions got to be the way they were sort of pre-Big Bang, if we can say that. And I know that there are some, you get into like uh, quantum physics and such, and they're like, well, you can't really ask what happened before the Big Bang because there is no such thing as before the Big Bang. It's like time started right then as well. I've heard it said that way. Um and, and people argue about these things in an academic way at the academic level. So um, that's, not, uh, that's not the one and only acceptable uh, view of this. But I'm just saying that, that it goes as deep as you want it to. There's no logical place to stop. Because ultimately it doesn't really make, it doesn't make that much sense. So once you realize that, it's like, well, then science and, and, and that kind of view of the world, it stops being this thing that you feel like you have to bow down to in a way. That view can come to dominate your, your, your psyche. You know, you can, you can drive yourself crazy if, uh, if you think that the world and everything in it has to sort of make sense on that logical level, and it just won't. Uh, I mean, if you if you read into, like I said, um, the quantum world, if you look at some of the uh, some of the the string theory stuff, which again, it's not that's not uh, that's not uh, anything that has been unanimously agreed upon within the scientific community. I watched a really good documentary about string theory a few years ago, and one of the prominent string theorists, I believe, I believe it was a guy named Leonard Susskind, one of the sort of grandfathers of, of string theory. Uh, he talked about confronting the idea that you might be spending your entire life trying to solve these equations and make sense of this theory that ultimately uh, is completely false. Someone tomorrow might uh, might completely shatter his life's work, you know, and and he knows that, and and a lot of the guys working on that kind of stuff do. I mean, that's a lot of weight to deal with. Um, anyway, uh, it, it all gets uh, very silly and very complicated, and a lot of it doesn't make sense. So, if you accept that, then then you can kind of um, you can kind of uh, open your heart a little bit. Let's say, let's say, open your heart, you know, to uh, to be a little airy fairy for a second. Uh, everything doesn't have to be so uh, dead. It's like there, 
you can allow for the idea of um, even something like the Force, if you're a Star Wars fan. And that's honestly, I mean, the Force kind of stems from George Lucas's view of the world. I think that he kind of uh, he he kind of wrote that story or the the uh, background mythology is kind of an explanation of how he views things. Not that he thinks that, that there are people who are actually, uh, you know, capable of doing things that, uh, that the Jedi and the Sith could do. I mean, who knows what people are capable of, honestly. You look at some of the stuff that we've accomplished over the years and, um, you know, show that to someone a thousand years ago, it would have been just as miraculous. So I wouldn't rule it out. I don't know. I don't know how this stuff works. You know, think about uh, consciousness itself. That doesn't make any sense. That's one that that really threw me when I started thinking about it, is the idea of consciousness and the idea of there being a light on in the house. There is a great philosopher of uh, consciousness named David Chalmers, one of the first guys that that I really got into, like one of the first modern philosophers who I started reading, which is kind of hilarious because uh, because he's a I don't know I, it's just it's a funny place to start I think it's very atypical as far as I can tell because I didn't jump into philosophy by taking a required philosophy course I kind of got into it on my own. And, uh, you know, I became interested in consciousness and I was like, who's talking about this? Is there anyone, you know, is this something that anyone thinks about or am I just crazy? And it's like, oh no, there are people who do this for a living. Okay. I'm not completely insane to be obsessed with this, this thought, like how am I able to look out and have anything register? What is that? You know, what is that thing? And so casually people kind of accept this idea that consciousness is just a byproduct of the brain. It's something that the brain creates. And when you really start thinking about that, I think it becomes really absurd to hold that view. I really do. I really think that's a silly, uh, a silly explanation to think that the brain magically creates consciousness because you can have what David Chalmers uh, calls like the philosophical zombie. You know, you could have a human being, I mean, made up exactly like you, a carbon copy of you, right? But with no experience. So it's basically like a robot. And when he says zombie, this is thrown around like as a philosophical zombie. It's different. It's not like it's going to bite you and turn you into a, a, you know, brain thirsty creature. Um, Philosophical zombie is like an exact carbon copy of you, but there is no light on. There's no experience happening. It would respond exactly like you would if you walked up and stabbed a philosophical zombie in the stomach it would start bleeding it would act like it was hurting 
But if you tried to sort of um, switch minds with it, there'd be nothing going on. There'd be no uh, sensation registering. If you tried to slip into the mind of the philosophical zombie, um, there'd be no sight happening, no hearing. There'd be no sense of touch. There'd be no sense of taste. There'd be no sense of self. It would be a complete void. Like I said, no light on inside. And, uh, and so if, if the body was moving about as a result of nothing but mechanical processes that ultimately boiled down to atoms ping-ponging off of each other, then you can imagine this philosophical zombie going about its day, doing everything that you would do as these processes happen, just with no experience. So from the sort of evolutionary perspective, where does this come from? If people are talking about consciousness being an evolved trait, I think that's that's a really tough one for me to accept. I don't see any reason to believe that consciousness is something evolved. I think it's more likely that consciousness is a fundamental um it's a fundamental component of reality. Kind of like the force, really. I mean, and then how that interacts with with the physical universe, that's a mystery. But it makes more sense to me that consciousness, experience, sensation, and such, or the, the capacity for it, is something that's fundamental. And then... Um, because the, the alternative view, that consciousness is a byproduct of the brain, like I said, that's really impossible to explain logically. Because let's start with the, the building blocks, right? There, people will cite the complexity of the brain. They'll talk about, um, what is it, billions of... of uh, neurons connected by uh, trillions of synapses, I believe. <clears throat> the sheer number of it is staggering. You know, the complexity of the, of the brain is staggering. But the complexity and the numbers don't really logically lead you anywhere. So if you, let's just say you start with uh, one neuron, right? And um, it's, it's just going, it's firing across a single synapse, you know, the, the smallest, uh, the smallest working component of a brain you can imagine. It's like, would you look at that? Would you look at the single firing neuron and think that there's anything like experience happening there? Just in this single isolated thing. It's just, these are just a few cells, right? They're... If you looked at that under a microscope and someone asked you, what do you think it would be like to be that thing right there? You'd be like, well, I can't really, I can't come up with anything. I can't imagine it would be like anything. There's no reason to think it would. So it's like, okay, well, what if you, what if you add a few more neural connections 
you know, and, and some more, some more cells in here. It's like, and then you keep doing that and doing that and doing that. Like you never hit a number where, where you would, you'd finally be like, okay, well now, now I think that, that this thing has become alive or aware. Now I think that there's a, there's a, a light on in the house. There's no, there's no logical reason for it. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's, and it's, it's tough to get your brain around if you've never thought about it before, because like I said, so many people just accept that this is the way it is, that the brain creates consciousness as opposed to saying the brain interfaces with consciousness, which is something completely different where then you have the brain being or the brain or the body because you're, you're, uh, um, what have they discovered that, uh, you've got neurons like, um, in your, uh, in your gut, basically, it's not just confined to your brain, you know, the, um, the way that the body is, you can consider it more of a router as opposed to just saying you have this one organ that sits up in your head that, uh, that, that sort of plays the, uh, the projection or something like that. It's, it's, uh, it's heady stuff, man. But that was, uh, that was all off of the, does free will exist question. So the reason that I brought all of that up is because, um, is because I was I was basically trying to to poke at some of these areas that people don't normally think of to show you that there is room for something like free will in the seemingly ordinary everyday physical universe in which we find ourselves. If you're a complete materialist, you know you have to think about these things still. Um, I think that it's pretty tough to be a hardline materialist, honestly. I think you have to ignore a lot. I mean, there are some people who've gone as far as to say that consciousness doesn't even exist. It's like, well, I don't even know what, I don't know how you can do that. I don't know what's going on. Uh, you're just, you're lying at that point, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I've heard people uh, bring up Benjamin Libet. He's a guy who did a series of uh, experiments where supposedly he he proved that free will was an illusion because he could he could see certain parts of the brain activating second however many milliseconds or so so before a decision was made. He would see certain parts of the brain lighting up that would um, that would sort of predict what a person was going to do, like whether or not they were going to move, um, you know, whether or not they were going to hit the button or something that they were uh, that they were given. You know, it was like 
a timer counts down. I don't remember exactly how this experiment works. It's been a while since I read about it. But I think it was it was something along the lines of, you know, there's a button in front of a person, a uh, little uh, timer starts to tick down or something, and it's like uh, they have to hit either the right or the left button, and then the the brain scan would show which which way a person was going to uh, to act before they actually reported having made the decision. Uh, Libet himself followed this up, followed up the results of this by saying that um, even as the person running the experiment, he wasn't concluding that free will didn't exist by uh, this experiment. He was saying that he believed that we might have what he referred to as a free won't where what you were seeing on this scan was uh, a kind of readiness potential, like the brain priming a certain area to carry out a particular task, but up to the moment uh, when the task is actually carried out and the person, the conscious experience inside might still have the option to cancel it, so to speak. And, um, and also on free will, I would say that as a free willist, I'm not a complete libertarian free willist, where it's like every single thing that I can imagine is open for me to implement in any given moment. I don't believe that. I don't believe that it's an option for me to uh, get up right now and dive out my, my office window. It's just, I can think about it, I can imagine it. But it's not something that's that's within the set of options that I could do in in the next moment. So in any given moment, I think that if you start to deliberate about what you're going to do next, that a kind of roulette wheel will begin to spin and you get all these options that you can see in front of you, you know, things that that you might actually consider doing. Um <clears throat> You can even, you, you could expand the wheel to include things that you know you wouldn't do. And, uh, and, and your brain will, will sort of uh, feed you various ideas. Some of them might be totally absurd. that You kind of chuckle about because you know that it's not something you would do. Other things might be things that you would consider doing. Uh, sort of the difference between, um, between like, uh, if you're looking at, a website, you know, there are there are hyperlinks that you can click on that would take you to another page, and then there's there's like uh, just the text that you can read. So it's like some of these ideas might just be text on the page that you can see. Um, other ideas that pop up might actually be hyperlinks that you know. Okay, well, I'm gonna actually decide to do this that's equivalent to clicking on the link and then it takes you to the place that you're trying to go uh, if you try and click on the text in my case as I just mentioned before jumping out my office window it's like no matter how much I think about it right now uh, it's just not up for consideration it's not something within the set of options given all of the other decisions that I've made up to this point in the future I could possibly work myself into a scenario, God forbid, where I do want to jump out my window. 
Now, I'll do everything that I can to make sure that doesn't happen. Hopefully, uh, I, I'd have to get to a pretty uh, miserable place. So, um, but as for now, I've done <laughs> what I've needed to do, I suppose, to make sure that that's not something that I have to contend with. That's not an option for me. It's, uh, it's, it's something that I can consider um, in a purely speculative way where I can imagine it. But like I said, it's not within the, the set of options that I might carry out in the next few minutes here. Okay. Oh, Booker T is here. Booker T says, isn't that called thinking? I'm not sure what I was saying at that point. It looks like you said that maybe five minutes ago. So I apologize. I missed that. I'll try and keep the chat up at uh, eye level here. But it's good to see you, Book. Looking real jacked. Baby. All right, next up. Obi-Wan asked, what's the most epic way you've seen someone quit or be fired? Well, this is good because this one, uh, this is a personal story of mine. Um, The best way I've seen someone quit is actually what I did. This is a story about me uh, and my buddy Brett, an old bandmate. Oh, hold on one second before I go there. Booker T said brain activity right before a decision. Isn't that called thinking? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was it was like the way that they had described it in in this uh, experiment was it was uh, I guess they they measured the electrical activity in certain parts of the brain and a person would they had some way that they would report that they had made their mind up so it was like when you decide which button you're going to press uh ding this bell or raise your hand or something like that let us know signal to us the moment that you've made your mind up what it is you're going to do and what they were what they were able to see in this experiment was that uh, using the readings, the the sort of uh, electrical information that they were scanning in the person's brain, they were able to um, they were able to guess or predict uh, which which button the people were going to press before they reported having made a, made their mind up. So it was like, um, okay, choose left or right. Okay, and then let's say they, they put their hand up and the moment when they have decided what they're going to do. But meanwhile, behind the glass, so to speak, looking at the computer monitor, uh, s- several milliseconds before they reported having made their mind up they had already shown on the screen this region of the brain light up that was correlated with either the left or the right button so 
it was this readiness potential, so to speak, saying that uh, the brain had already, they, some people use this terminology where they're like, well, the brain's already decided for you what you're going to do. And what you're reporting after the fact is just the experience of the brain having made up its own mind, so to speak. There's a lot of language like that used. Um, but again, the guy who performed this experiment, it wasn't 100% accurate. And he also allowed for this, this possibility that even after a person had made their mind up, they could still change their mind up until the point where the action itself had been carried out. So I'd have to go back and examine all of the particulars. It's been a while since I've read that one, but uh, yeah, it is quite presumptuous, but that is something that almost every proponent of determinism will, uh, will come out with if you're arguing with them. If you're arguing, arguing in favor of free will uh, with a determinist, they will almost always cite the Benjamin Libet experience um, or experiments, sorry. But not many of them like talking about the fact that Libet himself was not a determinist and, and left the question open. So, all right. Uh, what was I doing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the, the most epic way that I've quit. This is good. So I worked at McDonald's with my buddy Brett. We were in an old band called March and Collapse together. March and Collapse. We needed money for the band and we had both graduated high school. So it was like, what do we want to do here? Let's just get uh, a shitty job together, save up enough money to uh, get the proper funds to to go out and, and you know hit the road a bit and play more shows. We'll work for a few months and then once we've got enough money, once we've hit the the you know number that we're going for, um, sort of uh, our own little fundraiser. Once we hit that mark, then we'll just quit together, and it won't be so bad. We had both done our tours at McDonald's. At that point, McDonald's was actually the, uh, it was the first real job that I ever had. And that was when I was 15 and a half. Yeah. And then I, I, uh, I left, worked at quite a few other places. And then I went back and I worked there again a couple years later, I think when I was like 18 and then I quit and then I went to another location that was when I went with Brett and he had worked at McDonald's before that as well so we both knew how shitty it was to be an employee at McDonald's but again our thinking was look if we go in and it's kind of a package deal and we kind of ask them to uh, schedule us together say that we uh, I think we were saying that Brett relied on me for a ride we knew they needed morning people, so it's like, can you just give us the same schedule, and uh, we'll both be, you know, your your line cooks for the breakfast rush, and we, we were able to pull it off. We we got in there. Um, we had some good times, I will say. You know, you can you can really 
you can make a good time of a shitty situation if you have uh, a friend with you. And, you know, so we would go in there. I think we had to be in at 5. It was like 5 or 5.30, something like that. And I'd pick him up. And we'd roll in, you know, and it'd still be dark out. And we were both back on the uh, on the old breakfast grills. And I remember in the morning, with it being dark out, there was a Walgreens right across the street. And there was a, a big window in the drive-thru. Uh, so if you turned around from the grill, you could look out this window across the street. And we could see the glowing walgreen sign and we would always talk about that warm glow just this soothing warm glow of the walgreen sign and we'd go in there and we'd get you know a cup of coffee and just kind of lean against the grill and shoot the shit for a few minutes just gathering our wits preparing for what was to come because then you'd be you'd be taken out of that peaceful zen-like moment just enjoying your nice morning coffee and it would start the beep, beep, beep of someone rolling through the drive through And then it would begin. And it would not end until really, uh, it really didn't end until after, I would say, one or so, it seemed like. It was like there wasn't a big lull after that because the breakfast rush would start, you know, right around six or so, and it would not stop until breakfast was over. And right when breakfast was over, you have people starting to take their lunch break, which I, I can't for the life of me understand wanting to go out and get a double quarter pounder with cheese at 1030 in the morning. That's just, it sounds like the most unappealing thing I think that breakfast should run at least until 11. I mean, the idea of eating a cheeseburger before 11 a.m. is just disgusting. I, I can't I can't imagine it. Uh, but I digress. That breakfast rush would lead right into the beginning of the lunch rush. And so it was just like, go, 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 go. And you're sweating you're, you're back over that the grill, you know, you're scraping it to get all the debris, all like the meat debris that builds up. You scrape all that off. You empty out the grease vats. Uh, you're splashing grease everywhere. I remember one day, Brett was moving. Brett was moving the, uh, what do you call it? The, like the, uh, the gravy, the gravy container for the, uh, the sausage gravy, like the big kind of crock pot that they kept all the gravy in. And he was moving it from like one counter to the other and it slipped out of his hand and this big glop of gravy, like bloop, just like kind of blooped over the top and, and slapped right down on his forearm like boiling hot gravy and he wiped it away into the trash can and immediately his skin began to bubble up like the toxic avenger it was disgusting he had to go home that day he had to leave like immediately 
uh, and and uh, and go get treated for burns. That was nasty. That was not good. Um, also, let you know that uh, one day I was, I was, uh, you know, back there making the burgers, making the nuggets, and you see the way that it was set up. You can imagine this. So imagine facing a grill. Okay, if you're standing there at the grill, flipping the burgers and such, um, and, and you turn around, do a 180 from the grill, then you'd be staring at all of these, uh, you'd be staring at rows of trays kind of housed in, in a, a big, uh, um, how do I explain this? There's like a big metal shelving unit right when you would turn around where you would insert trays filled with uh, various meats and uh, and such. So you'd have like several trays full of just like the regular hamburger um, patties that you would use for your basic cheeseburger or double cheeseburgers and Big Macs and all that. And then you'd have a few more trays full of uh, the quarter pounder meat and then you'd have a few trays of, of uh, fish and so on and and each tray would slide into this like I said it was a it was a shelving unit like a metal shelving unit and each tray had its own little compartment that would slide into so you could um, pick up a bunch of uh, meat from the grill and turn around and grab a fresh tray drop all of the the new fresh meat in and then loaded up into this little shelving unit for the people on the other side of the counter at the make line as they called it to pull out those trays and then you know make all the food and stuff so uh with that mental picture when a tray would become empty right so let's say that uh, the people on the other side of where i was on the other side of the shelving unit they'd pull the tray out from their side they would take the last piece of uh, of reg meat, regular meat, you know, the last the last hamburger patty, and then they would take that empty tray, and they would throw it underneath the make line, down into this uh, into a little bin. Okay, they throw it down into a bin, and then they would yell something like, "Tray of reg, tray of fish," to let you know over on the grill, hey, it's time to make another tray of this or that. Okay, perfect. No big deal. Well, let me tell you this how about. The chicken nugget tray, it had this, uh, it was the only one that had this. All of the trays were just, you know, kind of hard plastic. The chicken nugget tray had inside of it a metal liner. It was, um... Uh, not mesh. What would you, what would you call that? Like, uh, hmm. How do you explain this? I, I can't think of the word for it. I don't know what, would, what it would be called. Um, let's just say that the, the nugget tray had a metal lining inside of it that you could remove, you know, that was, uh, that was kind of made up of um, crisscrossing metal bars, if you can imagine what this might look like. I don't know exactly why they put that in there, uh, but they did. 
And so one time, um, I, uh, I, I was, uh, I was reloading one of the trays up on this shelving unit and someone on the other side of the make line pulled out the chicken nugget tray, took the last nuggets, threw it underneath the make line, trying to launch it into this bucket, but they missed and they threw it directly at my shin and the metal part flew out at full speed and just smacked right against the bone, <laughs> right on my shin. And uh, it like drew blood. It, it hit fucking hard. And I uh, just instinctively, you know, it was like, I just, I screamed fuck. It just came out. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. it. You know, it's like one of those things where you're in a situation where you don't expect to be hurt by something out of nowhere. Like when you're completely defenseless, you have no reason to believe you're about to be injured. And then it just happened. And so I just screamed, fuck. And uh, we were pretty busy. And, and the manager just yelled back at me and was like, language. And my buddy Brett, stu- he stood up for me. Such a, such a good guy. Such a great guy in that moment, you know, and, and uh, he yelled back, he hurt himself. Just <laughs> trying to just trying to be a, a good dude and, you know, let him know up there in the front of the house what was going on. They weren't down in the trenches with us. You know, it, it was uh, it was war, man. It was uh, it was wartime. But now that you have a little bit of uh background history on my time at Mickey D's. Let me tell you how I left. So Brett and I went in as usual, did our morning routine and the manager comes up and uh, for no reason walks over to us and she's like, Hey Brett, I'm going to have Nick working with whatever this lady's name was. I can't remember her name. She was uh, probably late 20-something, kind of frumpy lady. I, I never talked to her. I didn't have anything against her. It was just like I, I kind of saw her in passing. We didn't usually work together. But she's like, I'm going to have Nick working with, uh, let's call her Ashley. I'm going to have Nick working with Ashley today, Brett. You're going to be over on the make line making sandwiches. And this had like never happened before. And we're probably maybe two and a half or three months in at this point. And that was, uh, that was it. That was it. The only way that we kept that job for so long is because we had each other. You ha- I had my war buddy, you know. You had your dude there next to you. And, uh, and you could joke around a little bit, you know, um, lighten the mood because you can start wandering off into some dark places, working in fast food by yourself. It's not a good, it's not a good place. Usually, you know, as a disgruntled youth. Yeah. So, so they separated us. They moved Brett onto the other side. And it was it was just like you know the it was like the the debuff kicked in immediately. And it was like 
both of our uh, both of our um, levels of disgust and and hatred for that place just went through the roof immediately. Like as soon as we started to get busy, it was just like, dude, this this sucks. You know why? Why did they do this? You know, and uh, and and we we kind of uh, had been talking about it a little bit. You know, we weren't like at the boiling point, but the the conversation had been had. You know, I think in the the weeks leading up to this day, where it was like, you know, we're probably getting pretty close to having enough money. You know, you think we should probably call it quits soon? You know, we think we'll be all right. So maybe an hour in after being separated after the, the, the segregation, I remember looking back at Brett, we had a moment of downtime and, uh, you know, he, he just looks at me. He's like, you want to do it today? And I was like, yeah, (laughs) he's like, okay. So I was like, let's wait until the middle of the rush. Okay, we're back. Sorry, I was disconnected for a second. You know, I was like, Ashley, I'm gonna run to the restroom real quick. And I removed my apron. I walked back to the time clock near the first drive through window. And very discreetly, I hung my apron up. And I grabbed my time card. And I grabbed Brett's time card. And I clocked us both out and I walked around the front of the counter, uh, uh, you know, toward the, uh, the side of the dining room where uh, view is obscured, where they can't see you anymore. And I left out the side door, skipping to my van jumping into the driver's seat and starting it up. And I, I I don't know if maybe I said this, but on the, on the way out, I had, uh, I walked by Brett, you know, when I was, you know, leaving the kitchen area and I just, I said, I I clocked you out, dude. And, and that was the cue. And so I waited there for, you know, maybe a minute, and I see him just come skipping out the door, like high stepping, doing this absurd run, you know, like this, this, uh, this yeehaw kind of cowboy run, like holding on to the top of his cap, you know, on the top of his work cap, just giddy up in. And he got in to the passenger seat and we just lost our shit. I don't know if I've ever laughed that hard in my life. And we laughed the entire way home and, uh, and it was like driving out of the parking lot, (laughs) just seeing the cars wrapped around the building, you know, knowing that, that, uh, like this, this girl, like she didn't, she didn't know what the hell she was doing. So it was like all the way, all the way home. It was like, we're, we're asking each other. It's like how many think how many things do you think they're holding on right now? Because that was like 
something that would happen. Um, let's say the make line side takes too many items without letting the grill know they've taken something, you know, and then they'll pull the tray out and be like, oh, we don't have anything. We don't have any fish. Holding on fish, holding on eggs, that kind of shit. And it's just like we ran through the entire list because they were probably holding on everything because this this chick was just waiting on me to get back, you know. And uh, and I realize, guys, it's not it's not advisable. I'm not saying that that's necessarily something to be proud of. There are more admirable ways to leave your job, but you know when you are uh, when you're a youngster and you want to stick it to the man and have a little fun. It's like they'll recover. They'll be fine. It's McDonald's. No one's no one's going to remember. It, even the people who have the horrible experience, where it's like I had to wait for 15 minutes. Uh, and I just drove away, you know, they're gonna, they'll be back at McDonald's next week. It's fine. But, but that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. And we went back in together the next week to get our checks. And the manager saw us and just gave us the death stare and wouldn't even say a word, just, just walked back, you know, into the office, wouldn't look at us. Um, but the guy, who was working, who handed us our checks. He kind of like leaned over the counter and he was like, dude, you guys are legends here now. And, uh, you know, it was, it was slightly uplifting. You know, we were the, uh, folk heroes for the moment at that location. So that has to be the, uh, the greatest real life story of quitting that I know. Um, and it's my story. I don't know anyone personally who's had a better story about quitting their job. That was a lot of fun. I would do that one again. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so we're back in uh back here in December with Obi-Wan's question. He says, "Ho ho ho, Merry Christmas, Nick." You sure do have a big backlog of questions here. Here's another. If you could know the absolute and total truth to one question, what question would you ask? Hmm, the absolute and total truth to one question. What question would you ask? Hmm. I don't know. Um, I don't know if I'd want to know the answer to any like super, any super, like, uh, mystery, you know what I mean? Like something that people ponder, one of those things. I don't know if I would want the, the definitive answer. Like, would I want the definitive answer, uh, to, let's say the free will question, you know, um, because I've got my opinion other people have their opinions. There's a there's a discussion that's been going on for, you know, over a thousand years on that topic. It's like, do I want to... And it's probably not going to end. Unless I use this kind of... Uh, unless I ask Will Smith, you know, the new genie to, to grant me this answer. I don't know if I'd want to do something like that. 
because I like pondering and I like the process of discussion too much. Hmm. Maybe something silly. You know, I have this thought from time to time where it's like, you ever wonder how many of something there is like at a given moment? Like, what's the number? How many fish exist right now in that moment? Give me like the, the time down to, you know, the nanosecond and the date and we can make a plaque and be like, on this date at this time down to the nanosecond, there were this many fish in all of existence. And you could have that. It could be like your little plaque. And you would you'd have that right there. It's like, I don't know how many there are now. I don't know how many were, there were five minutes after this. Probably a completely different number. You know, almost definitely. But at this time, on this date, here's how many fish existed. Total. In totality, I have that number right here. No one else knows that. That'd be kind of neat, you know. Um, yeah, maybe something like that. Just something kind of fun. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Hi, Nick. I'll keep asking these even though you said you weren't going to keep using Patreon because of some controversy. Hopefully soon you get around to working out Hangouts. Um, yeah, and I'm doing the 100th podcast now, so here we are. Anyway, here's my question. What in general do you think are the qualities of a good political leader? What in general do you think are the qualities of a good political leader? Well, um, good. This is interesting. This is an interesting question because uh, it's almost like certain certain times call for certain people. Like Trump, for instance, I don't think is necessarily the. Uh, he's not. He's not the uh, the archetype of presidentialness, right? You don't think of him and George Washington in the same uh, being in the same class, right? He's got his own thing going on. He is very much uh, a man for the times. But at this point, I think we needed someone who was, uh, uh, who was brash, someone who wasn't going to cower, someone who was, who was not bought and paid for, right? Someone who wasn't a part of the, the political elite already, who didn't owe a bunch of, uh, other politicians or, or donors favors, people who hadn't, a person who hadn't really played in the world of politics too much, you know, that sort of outsider thing, uh, it's, it's probably not always the time for that person because when things are going well and the system's working correctly, you, you kind of want people who work well within the system. You don't want to upset the balance 
and you don't want to shake things up just for the shake just for the sake of shaking them up but you want in times uh of of uh, uh turmoil and in in times of chaos you want someone who can come in and shake things up in the right way so so yeah i think that uh that's that's a tough question to answer but i mean you did say in general so i would say you want someone who is fairly honest i know that's a lot to ask out of politicians because i mean it's it's pretty much a cliche that you know there are no honest politicians uh, on either side i mean they they all have to say things uh i don't know that they all say things they don't mean i think the problem is that politicians often can't follow through on the things that they want to follow through on so maybe they're not all liars outright but a lot of them uh for various reasons can't get done the things that that they say they're going to get done because there is so much red tape involved in uh in politics you know in government it's it's like that deal with um you know, use another Trump example with him getting the skating rink in New York City fixed. I think in Central Park, there was a skating rink that had been closed for, I believe it was like close to 10 years that the city had, uh, had you know, had this skating rink closed down where, you know, for various reasons, they had had the project started and stopped uh they had to again go through all these hoops to find um to find a company that they thought was going to be uh sufficient to get the job done and then then uh, the problem getting the funds together to to pay the people uh causes kind of stop and start process and and then uh, the project needed to be scrapped and started from scratch again because they didn't they didn't know what to look for in a contractor and all this kind of stuff. So Trump got tired of seeing this thing in a state of disrepair, I believe, when he was walking to work every day. He said he got tired of looking at it. So he went to uh, he went to the local uh, government, whoever was in charge of this, and he told them that if they would allow him to spearhead this project, he would pay for the renovation out of his own pocket and have it done by the end of the year. And he did. Uh, he had it done early. Um, ahead of schedule, under budget, I believe, is, is uh, the, uh, the phrase that likes to be thrown around there. But, you know, it's that kind of thing. The, the way that government works is... You know, it's it's like uh, an enemy of efficiency. So it's good to have people in there who are assertive and who will get things done or try their damnedest to. You don't want a pushover. You also don't want a tyrant, of course. So it's got to be someone who uh, who stands his ground or her ground. Um without abusing the power.
And at this point, you know, with uh, people, the precedent has been set for these executive orders and such. So uh, it, it's uh, people accuse Trump of, of being a tyrant and, and uh, being a borderline dictator. And it's like, no, man, he uh, if he wanted to, it seems like um, he could just declare himself king with the way that uh, we've allowed the the presidential um, executive order to be used. We better hope that we don't get a, a true tyrant in there anytime soon. Um, so you want someone who's going to be able to navigate those waters, wield the power in a way that is sensible. I think that probably once once Trump is out of office, uh, hopefully things have settled down to the point where we don't need the, uh, the sort of... Uh, Twitter controversies. I will admit that I love following Donald Trump's Twitter. I'm not one of the people who's like, well, I like some of the things he's done, but I think he needs to put the Twitter away. No, I, I don't mind it because I think that the, the media is so screwed up that it's like the only way that he can get word out to the people directly um, without having things twisted. He knows that if he goes on Twitter and says something that millions of people are going to read it immediately and it will be his words that he wants to put out there. I would like to see uh, things settle down a bit, a, a bit more unbiased news coverage that might open the door for some more traditionally presidential candidates to come in and do the job um, in maybe a less bombastic way because I don't think every president needs to be Donald Trump, but I think that Donald Trump needed to be president uh, this time around, and uh, and probably in 2020. I don't see anyone on the Democrat side who's uh, who's who's uh, doing anything. I think to challenge him in a meaningful way. You know, you don't. There's not like there's not a, a you know blue collar Democrat who's who's coming out and really um challenging trump fighting for the working families and you know traditional americans is stuff on on the democrat side now is like so far left it's absurd it seems like a race to to see how far left you can go um but i don't think that'll keep up forever either hopefully not we need some balance you know i think you need both parties but anyway, good political leader, common sense stuff, you know, be, be as, uh, be as honest as possible, have a good foundation for your beliefs, lead by, uh, you know, lead by, uh, example, that kind of stuff. Okay. I'll, I'll move on here. How would your country change if everyone, regardless of age, could vote? Oh, Jesus. Ooh. Uh, I think that the country would... How would it change? It might not exist anymore if, if everyone could vote. 
everyone. You're saying regardless of age. I mean, that even you didn't give a number here, but even let's say you stop it at 16. I mean, kids at 16 know nothing. And there's there are politicians who are seriously pushing for 16-year-olds to be allowed to vote. It's like you're still taking government class when you're 16. You're still getting graded on whether or not you even know how the political system works when you're 16. Some of the kids haven't even taken that yet. So that would be bad news. I mean, for for everyone, I think young kids tend to lean uh, to the left, but I'm that's not even that's not even the concern here. It's just like kids being completely uh, uninformed, not just about the issues and not just about how government works, but also about life, not having any life experience, not even being out of high school yet um, or being close to it, not beginning to even think really about uh, what comes after school. I think most kids start to think about that around 16, but I mean, you know, not everyone. And to think that you could still be a complete child living at home, you don't have to have a job, you don't have to have a car, um, you don't have to have any responsibilities whatsoever when you're 16 years old. And to think that that someone within that uh, within that bracket would be making decisions about the direction of the country, that would be bad news. I would give that a big no poke. Um, so, all right, what's next? Uh, real quick on the chat. Obi-Wan said, I heard the construction company Trump hired for that was owed money in the end. I'd have to look into that. I don't know. I do not know uh, the particulars. I just know that um, I read his book where he de- he described that, and I remember reading an article about it as well. But I didn't. Uh, I didn't recall the company being owed. I'd have to look that up. But I will. I'll check that out. Okay, it's that time of the month again. What is the one thing you'd most like to change about the world? I would like to see people figure out um, I'd like to see people sort of uh, crack the case here on what it is that they're that they're aiming at. I think that would be something good. You know, and get people get people on the same page about like the fundamentals. What would be good for everyone? That would be something good to sort out. And then kind of go from there. Not and I'm not saying this in a way where it's like we force people to um to do this or that thing, but if it's like if we could evaluate everyone and and be like Uh, all these disjointed groups of people 
all these individuals, people with uh, different hopes and dreams and aspirations and beliefs and backgrounds and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, what if we could get people to zero in on the, the basic fundamental, um, good, I think that would be beneficial. You know, that might sound kind of surface and, uh, and, and, and basic, but I think that it's, it's something that's lacking because I think people are so disjointed. Like I said earlier, it's tough to feel sometimes like, like you have, um, you want to, you want to feel like, and you want to believe that you have common ground with everyone. But I think that some people's beliefs and the way that some people approach the world is so radically incompatible with with their uh, philosophical opponents, we could say, that it's tough for them to even have a conversation because they disagree about the fundamental truths and the fundamental uh, good in life. You know, it's it's like I it would be nice if no one believed that life was meaningless. It would be nice if no one believed that the planet would be better off without human beings. But there are people out there who actually hold those views and who think that that the world would be a better place if everyone just ceased to exist. They'll go on to tell you, no, I'm not saying that I think people, that we should, uh, we should all kill ourselves or that, uh, you know, that I want to kill everyone. No, I don't mean that. I just think that things would be better off uh, if we didn't exist, there are, there are people out there who seriously think that that is a tenable, admirable position. And it's like, if you take that view, it's really difficult to even begin to have a discussion with you because your, your starting point is, is in such opposition to mine at that point. I don't, I don't know where to go. I don't know where to where to go from that. I guess you could say, well, n- neither one of us want to to suffer, um, uh, you know, to a greater degree than we have to, or something like that. But I don't know when when you have people seriously taking those types of positions, you're not talking about just disagreeing with with someone, you know, about which god they want to worship or or something along those lines, you're talking about um, a very fundamental and, uh, I don't know, irreparable divide. I don't know how you navigate something like that. And it seems to be growing. That seems to be much more, there, there are people saying those kinds of things with much more casualty now than than I ever remember in my life. You know, it seems like there are many people out there who kind of casually just toss around this idea that life is meaningless and, you know, that, uh, you know, the whole thing's pointless and 
the best thing you can do is kind of laugh at it. It's like, well, I don't, I don't believe that at all. Um, I think that it's ripe with meaning and that if you want a meaningful life, you can have one. It's not always easy, but I don't know. I, I could get off on another tangent there, but I would like to, I would like to see that change. I would like, and what does that boil down to? Maybe it's, maybe it's, um, the over amplification of cynicism and pessimism and everything having to be ironic. Um, you know, a lack of sincerity Yeah, perhaps a bit more sincerity, perhaps less pessimism, more hopefulness. And I'm not talking about people being naive or walking around with a cheesy grin on their face all the time. I'm talking about being thankful for the fact that you get to, uh, to be here. Being thankful for the fact that you get to work towards something and that uh, you get to try and make your life better. And then hopefully by doing so, make the lives of those around you better as well. I'd like to see that attitude change. Uh, where people are so have such aversion to that. You know, people have this uh, kind of like a sneer in their soul. A lot of them do. And it's really unfortunate. I don't think there's anything cool about it. Um, I'd like to see that change. Uh, Booker T said clown world. I don't know what clown world would be. I think that, that what you're dealing with now is kind of a clown world in, in many respects. Um, kind of like the the spirit of uh uh it's like that i don't know i don't know yeah let me see what's next what's next last one here guys okay what did you think was cool then when you were young but isn't cool now what was cool when i was young but it isn't cool now. Well, uh, I did go through a phase where I thought Limp Biscuit was awesome. I thought Limp Biscuit and Fred Durst was really cool. I would say that I probably don't believe that now. I can tell you actually that I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call them cool. So that's an easy one. Yeah, I don't I don't think Limp Biscuit is really cool anymore. But I remember getting like super pumped up listening to Limp Biscuit on the way to, you know, football games on the bus. I'd take my CD player with me. Listening to Fred Durst yelling in my ear, you know, getting real jacked before the football game, going to play the hometown rival. Yeah, man. Feeling real cool. 
with the disc man. Yeah. Not now, though. If I was on the bus riding to to play a football game, I would not be listening to Limp Biscuit anymore. Yeah. And I'm not, look, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to say that I listened to Limp Biscuit. A lot of people did. I thought that shit went hard, man. That was like heavy stuff. At that point, I wasn't exposed to uh, uh, to uh, so much of the music that I listen to now. I got my tunes from the radio, and uh, and then I started expanding my horizons when when I you know uh, started downloading stuff off uh, Kazaa and LimeWire and such. And I had friends in in high school who were like you know into punk rock and shit, but I didn't. No one I hung out with in junior high or before that was into uh, to punk rock or or you know underground music as you might call it back then. Everyone just listened to the radio, and we bought CDs of bands you know whose music videos were played on MTV and shit. So you know it's a product of the times. That's okay. It was cool then, not so cool now. That's all right. No big deal. Booker T says, Clown World is a meme that's pushed by nihilists who think we should just laugh at all the world's ills. Oh, okay. Yeah, that. I've heard I've heard that philosophy also described as happy nihilism, which I also think is uh, horse shit. I, have just, I just have no... I have no love in my heart for nihilism in any form. I think it's hogwash. Uh, and, and the greatest thing is when you run into the nihilist who will argue passionately with you um, about how wrong you are, who will defend their position so fervently and, and will, will go back and forth with you uh, endlessly. But it doesn't mean anything. It's like, come on, dude. You care. Those people care. They've got something they care about. They, it's, it's self-defeating horse shit. It's posturing. I don't think anyone really, really, truly believes that shit. Uh, it's like a, a game of intellectual gross-out, kind of. I don't buy it. Uh, I think it's useless. Does anyone else have any questions for me this evening? It looks like Booker T is here, and Obi-Wan is here. And uh, perhaps a couple, a couple, three more. I don't know. I guess that's probably going to be about it then. I got through those. Glad to. I um, I was going to come on and do this tomorrow, but I, uh, I've kind of set myself up with a busy day tomorrow and I did not want to run the risk of, uh, of going into Saturday and, and not having this done because I told Obi-Wan I was going to do this on Friday at the latest and, um, and I really wanted to make that happen. So here we are. Hopefully Obi-Wan, your questions have been answered in a satisfactory way. Hopefully you don't feel like I cheated you on any of these. 
Perhaps I rambled too long. I don't know. Uh, this is... Is this the first? This might be the very first solo episode of the Super Divorce Supercast. Maybe I did another one by myself at some point. I don't know. I can't recall. But at the very least, it's rare. It's a rarity. But it will not be moving forward. This is going to be the new setup. Though I don't know if I'm going to do every episode live. A reason why I like doing it live is because if I stream it, then I don't have to record it and then upload it after the fact. It just does the upload automatically when I finish the video, which is nice. But then I'm going to have to download. I'm going to have to download the video, and then um, and then take the audio file and upload that to the website so that it'll be put up on iTunes and all that other shit. But uh, yeah. Okay. <sighs> Obi-Wan says, uh, it was money well spent. And he wants to know if he is to continue asking questions every month. Well, yeah, I would say as long as the Patreon is there, go ahead. I'm looking into this other thing called Subscribestar. And I'm, I keep waiting on news. I, I remember uh, Jordan Peterson and Dave Rubin. We're supposed to be working on a new alternative to Patreon that was going to be um, built on a foundation of free speech and, you know, um, letting people uh, speak freely regardless of their political affiliation, not censoring people and such, uh, which I think is important. Really need that. And I would like to support that. I just haven't heard any news on it in a while. So perhaps until that happens, I'll just keep this going. We good? Okay. All right. But yeah, so long as uh, the Patreon is around, please continue to ask questions. Obi-Wan, I've enjoyed answering these. It's been a good evening. So everyone else, thank you. Uh, if you're watching live or if you're watching after the fact or listening or whatever, uh, Booker T, thank you. It's, uh, it's nice to see you. It's been a, a long time. It's been a long time. Shouldn't have left you without a dope beat to step to step to. All right, guys, that's going to be about it. Have a fantastic Friday and enjoy your weekend. And uh, Lord willing, I'll see you back here next Friday for another episode of the one-man show, the Super Divorce Supercast. Talk to you guys soon. Good night.